Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are beginning to wind down our series in the Book of Acts, and here, Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers will be discussing Acts chapter 25, which is Paul before Caesar, as well as Agrippa and Bernice. As always, we do invite you to check out those show notes, particularly to subscribe and hit the bell on our YouTube channel. This week, we continued our video series, Walking Through the Book of Revelation with Peter Lightheart. We also released a psalm chant video for Psalm 3, and that chant tone comes from our Theopolis Liturgy and Psalter, which you can now find at Athanasius Press. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you are sharpened and edified by this conversation over these passages. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Acts 25. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm here today with James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts. Uh, Brian Motes, as usual, is running the recording and um, he will be editing and preparing it for the listening audience. Uh, We are in the middle of a series on the book of Acts, and we're nearing the end of the book of Acts. Uh, We're in the section of Acts when Paul has been arrested and he's being moved from courtroom to courtroom, various hearings before the Jews, then before a couple of Roman authorities, and eventually he's going to be have a hearing before Agrippa. We'll talk about that in the next episode. That's the final hearing that we have recorded for us in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts leaves us uh, anticipating a, a hearing before Caesar that uh, it doesn't actually record. Uh, as we've said before, this is a section where Paul is following in the footsteps of Jesus. Uh, he's going through the same courts and the same trials that Jesus went through. Both of them were tried by a Roman court, both tried by the Jews, both tried by a Herod. And uh, those courts are appearing here in the book of Acts. And Paul is the uh, the one on trial. And the details that match up with the details that Luke records in his gospel, uh, the fact that the, Paul is transferred to, to Herod Agrippa and has a hearing before Herod Agrippa is, is uh, Festus's idea. It's the idea of the Roman governor just as in Luke, sending Jesus over to Herod is the idea of Pilate. So you have that 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 level of detail that shows a parallel between the trials of Jesus and the trial of Paul. And uh, Paul is living out, as the other apostles do, the life of Jesus in his own life. Uh, one of the things I want to uh, talk about as we go through chapter 25, which is where we are today, uh, is the portrayal of the Roman authorities. Uh, this has come up a number of times throughout our studies in the book of Acts. But the uh, in, in one sense, the Roman authorities have been presented fairly sympathetically because they're the ones that have intervened on a number of occasions to protect the Christians from those uh, the persecutors, the most active and intense persecutors who are the Jews. But there are subtle hints, I think, and maybe maybe there's, the hints are becoming stronger as we move further on in the book of Acts, that the Roman authorities are uh, weak in response to the Jews, that they're being pressured and uh, they're being swayed by Jewish hostility to the Christians. And that pressure from the Jews is leading them to make decisions and to arrange things and manipulate things to the disadvantage of the Christians. And uh, I think there are a couple of signs of that in Festus's action. We'll talk about that as we go through uh, chapter 25 today. The thing I want to start with, though, is the opening verses where Festus replaces Felix as the Roman governor. That's the Uh, That's the new thing. Paul's still in prison when Felix leaves office and Festus takes his place. 
Uh, and then we have this uh, brief descrip- description of Festus's movements. He starts out in Caesarea, which is uh, the center of the Roman authority in the area, goes to Jerusalem and meets with the Jews there, uh, and then returns to Caesarea and the hearing uh, with Paul is held in Caesarea. Uh, we, I want to talk about the other details, but one of the things that's curious about this to me and want to get your input on it is the the chronological references that are here. Uh, verse 1 begins, Festus, having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem. So three days into his new position, he visits Jerusalem. Then verse 6 tells us that he spent no more than eight or ten days among them, that is, in Jerusalem, which is a, that's an interesting, unspecific number. Uh, and then he goes back to Caesarea after maybe eight or ten days, and on the very next day, he takes a seat in the tribunal, and Paul is brought in. Uh, later on, we're going to talk about Agrippa paying a visit to Caesarea, and after a discussion with Festus, Agrippa is going to hear from Paul tomorrow, the very next day. So, uh, in a sense, there are specific references to the passage of several days, which is somewhat unusual. But then the oddity of verse six, where you have this uh, uh, this ins- unspecific reference to eight or ten days in Jerusalem. So, any thoughts on the on the prominence of the chronology in these opening verses, uh, and then more generally, any thoughts on why we're told about Festus's movements? Why not just go straight into Festus calling Paul? to uh, Paul out of prison for another hearing once he's in, in, in power. Why this, why this movement back and forth between Caesarea and Jerusalem? One factor might be the fact that he's just arrived in this position. And so he would be, um, it would be in his favor to carry a bit of support from the Jerusalem leaders. And so the weight of the favor that is asked of him would be greater at this point. Um, that doesn't explain the specificity of the number, but it certainly helps to understand why um, doing something that the Jerusalem authorities had requested of him might be in his interests at this earliest early stage of his governorship. Luke has an interest in Luke has an interest in um, describing these facts, and maybe the real obvious point here is this. Um, has the ring of truth to it. It fits with what we know about the geography. And as Elser just said, with Festus uh, coming on, the kinds of things he would want to do uh, to establish his his authority there. Um, and but I don't. I think you're probably asking about is there some symbolic or um, typological associations here with these numbers. And I haven't thought about that. Yeah, that, that's one of the things I was I was thinking about. Uh, just back up and talk about the other point for a second. Uh, it, yeah, Alistair, I, I think you're right that it does make sense for Festus to do what he's doing. The question I was I had was also, why would Luke record it? Is this some? Uh, is he offering us some insight into Festus? Uh, is there some other purpose for? Uh, some some uh, some other narrative purpose for including these details because we you know other things are going on you know Felix does uh, all kinds of things as a as a Roman governor that we don't hear he has interactions with the Jewish leaders surely that we aren't, that aren't recorded but um, uh, Luke chooses to record these one of the things that uh, I thought of that uh, may have some role in this is you you do seem to be Festus's movements in some way replicate Paul's movements Paul has gone up to Jerusalem. 
uh, spent some time there. He's arrested and then he's been transferred to Caesarea. And then there's a hearing in Caesarea in the, while he's in Jerusalem, there's a plot against him. This is back a couple of chapters in chapters uh, 21 through 23. There's a plot to kill, to kill Paul uh, and an ambush. Uh, we talked about the uh, 40 men who take a, a, a vow of fasting until they've killed Paul. Uh, so you have, you have those geographic shifts for Paul himself. And now Festus is going through the same geographic movements, going up to Jerusalem, then back to Caesarea. And we even have a reference to another ambush or a renewal ambush plan in verse three. So it, at least strictly speaking, it looks like we're having some kind of recapitulation of what happened a few chapters earlier where, with Paul being the one who's moving around. Um, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know what to make of that, but there does seem to be that, uh, that narrative parallel going on, that that same similar cycle happening in beginning of 25 has happened earlier. The one other thing I've wondered about is whether we should see it as some indication of a, a chiastic structure. Um, earlier on, you have the movements between Jerusalem and Caesarea in the story of Peter and Cornelius. You have the eight years for um, Aeneas being... Um, bedridden and then you have the three days um with paul um in his blindness and a number of other threes within the story of of peter but that would take quite a bit to put together if there were some sort of chiastic structure at play yeah that would be yeah that would be interesting that's that's worth the leaving on the table for our listeners somebody working uh in detail on acts to work out that uh, the large, I hadn't thought about the larger, the narrative echoes in the larger structure that, that, uh, that could be a really fruitful investigation. The, the other on the, on the chronology thing, well, the three, three days, you know, you immediately think of some kind of event in the middle of the week. Uh, the, the, the broken week Jesus raised on the third day in anticipation of a seventh day, final day resurrection. So there's a Festus's appearance before the Jews in Jerusalem. I wonder about that. But then I also started totaling. So you got three days. There's three days from his beginning of his uh, of his position, of, uh, his assumption of the position, goes up to Jerusalem. He's there eight or ten days. So that's between eleven and thirteen days. And then he's back in Caesarea. And the next day, which would be depending on whether we take eight or ten, would be either the twelfth or the fourteenth day. So I wonder if there's uh, some kind of sabbatical thing going on if we take the 10 day uh 10 day span and I, uh, that could be interesting to as we go forward into chapter 27 where there's again a uh, specific references to certain days and how many days have been passing uh in paul's um travel and shipwreck 20 chapters 27 and 28 uh and jim jordan has argued in his monograph on sabbath breaking that um paul's um encounter with the with the serpent actually takes place on a Sabbath within the chronology of that event. There's a 14 day span uh, when Paul is uh, bitten by, he's picking up sticks. That's the, that's the Sabbath connection with back with the, back with the Pentateuch and then picking up sticks on this 14th day, he's struck by a serpent and and dies. And there there may be some play with a, with a Sabbath kind of theme. That was one of the thoughts I had. Hmm. I guess there were two, possibly distinct questions one is how is luke getting this information in in the first place and um something that strikes me 
is very interesting in the Old Testament, at least, is the way in which days and um, references to specific days tend to revolve around um, the priests and the temple and liturgies and things like that. Um, by way of contrast, I mean, if you think of our um, data on Israel's kings, for instance, we don't know when a single king rose to power in terms of a day. I'm not sure we even know any months. We just have regnal years. And that's the case in almost all of the um, Old Testament until you get to specifically priestly related things. So, you know, we know when the um, temple was built, we know when the um, uh, tabernacle was inaugurated and when the ark set forth and when it was brought into various places and um, when I don't know, uh, in Darius's reign, when Zechariah and Haggai prophesied, they give us days. And I wonder if one of the things going on here could be just the, um, we're getting into Jerusalem and in and around the temple. And I wonder if part of Luke's information is is coming from um, temple records and mm. places where the calendar was kept and um, administered by priests. And I, I wonder if that's um, part of the, historical question um i guess a broader point which i'd I'd want to look into might have to do with calendars you know um so one of the things that i think is happening as the book of acts pans out is there is um a reference to various sort of feasts which get i don't know go, go a little bit wrong in some way so in acts 12 we have the passover um paul comes to um uh, observe a feast at, at Pentecost um, here towards the end in Acts 21 or, or, or thereabouts and um, in Acts 27 there is this day of the fast which seems very likely to be um, connected to Yom Kippur to the day of atonement and so I wonder if there is a um, a working through of various feasts um, in, in Acts and if the passing of days has got to do with that but uh, I'd want to sort of look at it more I think yeah, very interesting suggestion, and I I, I think that um, it, correct me if I'm wrong, James, but I I think that the reference to Pentecost is about it's it's uh, mentioned when Paul intends to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, but it's not right, mentioned yeah. when he actually, when he actually gets there. That's uh, it doesn't say he was there for Pentecost. So the the, right. the supposition is that he he fulfilled his intention to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. Is is that how you're how you're reading the the text right yeah yeah it is and um and um as i say some some of these seem to be slightly um inverted you know so on the Mm -hmm. at the time of the passover um in herod's initial passover um you know rather than this being a great moment of um release and deliverance you know um instead peter and and james are delivered over and james is killed um in the next Pentecost, which takes place, um, there is sort of rather than unity of languages, there is confusion of languages in that Paul sort of starts in Greek and then transitions to Aramaic, mm. and then the Roman guard mm. can't understand him, and um, the message is is rejected um, by everyone there rather than accepted. and And I wonder if there's something along those lines going on. Yeah, that very interesting. And and I guess the, what the think the thought I had is the. When it depends on the gospel, when Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he goes there for a feast, there's a fairly explicit reference to the fact that it's a feast that draws him there. 
John is particularly clear on this. Um, but the, the, the actual references to the feast moments is, is, is hidden in other details if it's there. Uh, so that, that also makes, that also is curious that, um, He'd intend to get there for Pentecost. All these Pentecostal type things are happening or inverted Pentecostal things are happening. Uh, and yet there's no explicit reference to his arrival at the time of Pentecost. Uh, it's the, the feast is somehow hidden behind the other, the other uh, what's that was specifically in the text. Hmm. Yeah. So Festus takes over and he, as Alistair said, he visits the Jews. He's uh, getting a, uh, getting to know them and, uh, and is uh, there's a motivation for him to uh, make a concession, as uh, as uh, my NASB translates it. The word is charis. Uh, it's you know do a favor or a grace, which he refuses when they ask him to do it uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, but then once he gets back to Caesarea, he decides that he is going to do a favor for the Jews. He's thinking of doing a favor for the Jews. Uh, during the hearing that he holds in Caesarea. So I'm, I'm assuming that when he calls Paul before him in Caesarea, that he's kind of getting caught up on old business that Felix left behind. So he, he wants to know what's going on with this imprisoned Jew. Uh, and that's why we have another, uh, why we have another hearing. Is there any other, is that, is that how you're reading it? Or do you have, do you see other reasons why he would repeat the, what seems to be the same, the same scenario, the same hearing that he had before, that Paul had before. Your opening comments, Peter, about um, the disposition of the Romans here and whether it's um, it's changing somewhat is interesting. Um, Festus, of course, is coming to be the governor over a hotspot, and Felix has been removed, and he's now there, and it's the Jews who are the rebellious ones, and you know, everybody in the Roman Empire knows that. It's not easy to deal with them. Um, they're asking for a favor, a grace. Uh, Festus realizes that maybe it would be a good thing to pacify and mollify the Jews with this, uh, with this gift, which would be Paul. And then down in verse 11, that same word, uh, charis, occurs as a verb form where Paul says, uh, if there's no charges against me, no one can give me up as a gift. Um, so I'm not going to be the gift that establishes you in your governorship. Uh, I'm not going to be the scapegoat. Um, and it, it's, it just, it's interesting revelation of the, the uh, behind the scenes machinations of Festus and the Jews uh, using Paul as something of a political football. Well, what do you think is the big issue with Paul here? It seems that Paul is a, I don't know, like a hot potato of some kind. No one really wants to deal with him. So Lysias refers him um, to the governor in previous chapters, in chapter 23. And then after Felix can't transfer Paul's case elsewhere, he sort of defers it. And then it becomes a problem for Festus to um, deal with. And, and Festus will then sort of have a final failed um uh, attempt to transfer the the problem elsewhere, or, or at least like an aborted attempt to do it. And um, what, what do you think is the um, pressure which the Roman governors are um, feeling, or, or at least those in power over Israel are feeling? Is it? I mean, getting rid of Paul would obviously please the Jews. 
Is it just the pressure of doing something unjust or is there is there more at stake in Paul's treatment here? It certainly tells us that Paul and the Christian faith is a is a major force. Uh, everybody's everybody's relating to him and to the rise of the church, including the Romans. And so as the church is reading this as or as various communities around uh, Judea and around the Mediterranean are reading this account by Luke, they have to be amazed that this man, Paul, has attracted the attention of these uh, officials, both in in Jerusalem and in Rome. And this should be encouraging to them. Uh, Things are happening. Um, God is at work, even behind the scenes. I mean, we asked earlier about why Luke includes all these details. We don't know how. Maybe he has some uh, connection with the sta- governor's staff or something. Who knows? But the fact that he includes these details means that the church, when it reads this, ought to recognize that God is orchestrating these things behind the scenes. Uh, and all this information that's going on in the back room, it's unbeknownst to Paul, uh, except when it's revealed to him. Um, and it's all about the church having some confidence that what's going on as 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 much upheaval as much persecution or trouble they're experiencing it's going somewhere there's a direction here um, and it's an it's instruction to the fledgling church about how God orchestrates even these these pagan rulers and these unbelieving apostate Jewish rulers one of the issues at stake, I would presume, is it's not just about Paul. Um, it's about the status of the Christian movement more generally. Um, is it something that is being seen as just a movement of Judaism, a sect of Judaism? Um, and Paul's refusal to go to the Jews to operate under the oversight of the Sanhedrin and others is, on some level, a break with that in a more decisive in a more decisive manner and so the question for um festus would among other things be how do you treat this movement that is clearly opposed by many of the jewish leaders which might come under many of the protections of the jewish movement within the wider empire but it has this liminal status it's not entirely accepted mm-hmm. by the jews but nor is it seen as a religion in its own right by the Roman authorities. And so it's a delicate situation to deal with. It's going to provoke opposition. It's clearly something that has been a cause of upset for the last um, few decades. And he needs to tread very carefully as someone who's just come on the scene. Yeah, that's really helpful, Alistair. Back to your question, James, I was thinking kind of along the lines that you suggested. I think Alistair's added another layer that I hadn't uh, considered, but I think the dilemma does seem to be between the pull to do the Jews a favor in order to secure his new governorship and to keep keep a semblance of peace. And on the other hand, the recognition that Paul is innocent, that Paul would be uh, not be treated fairly by the Jews um, the Roman authorities seem to recognize that, that the Jews are just out to, to kill Paul, even though they recognize that he hasn't done anything that deserves, um, that that's a capital crime. So that does seem to be the dilemma. 
And I, th- I guess the, the, one of the things that struck me working through this was the kind of a point of political ethics. Uh, I can I could see uh, it, it would be very easy to become a Festus and to think, well, you know, the large my larger aims as a governor of the Roman Empire is to maintain the peace. Uh, and if I need to, if in order to do that, uh, I do a little wrong to do a greater right, uh, then it's it's worth the trouble to fudge Paul's case. And he's not, he, oh, he doesn't decide against Paul. That's that's also part of the fudging. He, it's it's worthwhile to fudge Paul's case, not to officially declare him innocent and let him go. Uh, it's worth keeping him in, in, imprisoned so that the Jews uh, are somewhat satisfied and uh, I can maintain peace. So, Cause that's my, that's my, that's my larger aim. So the lure of playing politics to achieve an, achieve a kind of semblance of, uh, of, of peace at the expense of doing justice in a particular case. I think the, the that seems to be the larger dilemma that, uh, that Festus is facing. And I think it's a, uh, it's a, it's a real dilemma for, Political leaders, it's a real dilemma for churches, for pastors and elders who are trying to make decisions. Do you disrupt the congregation by exposing some uh, some evil, or do you try to massage it and keep it under wraps and and uh, you know do some kind of private discipline so that you don't you don't rock the boat and create more problems than uh, than you otherwise would? So I think that that's a, that seems to be the kind of dilemma that he's that he's facing. What do you think that Festus is offering in verse 9? I mean, my impression of that is that in doing the Jews a favor, he's trying to create some middle option, which is a Jewish proceeding over which he is presiding. Um, he is, on the one hand, trying to please the Jews, but also trying to give Paul a greater yeah. sense of protection, that he's not going to just deliver him over to them, but he will make sure that justice is done in some manner. Um how should we read what he's offering in verse nine? Yeah, I think you're you're, you're uh, calling attention to the "before me" phrase that I I hadn't uh, I hadn't noticed. So it's not just to go up to Jerusalem, but he's standing trial before Festus in Jerusalem. So that yeah, that does him give some kind of guarantee. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I wonder if part of it is related to verse seven. In that, it strikes me as interesting that. When um, Paul was initially tried here, the Jews couldn't prove their charges, which, I mean, that says quite a lot for the standard um, of the court. You wouldn't think it would be too hard just to trump up lots of false witnesses and and get someone to be falsely um, imprisoned or or worse, but they weren't able to do that. And I wonder if in Jerusalem there would have been more people whom they could sort of uh, convince to come forward as witnesses and they could gather more of a case together i don't know if that's part of what lies behind this and it does seem that the charges concerning his actions in the temple have largely fallen away at this point um Mm -hmm. you don't really hear much of them at the nor against the temple is mentioned in verse eight but apart from that there's very little said about it it seems that those aren't fitting grounds upon which to take any sort of action against him and so maybe at this point the question of sedition has a bit more force um, that still has to be settled but um, mm-hmm. the actions in the temple clearly were groundless um, as they were, they were not grounds for imprisoning him or taking action against him yeah and yet when uh, 
when Festus talks to Agrippa about the meeting that he had with the Jews, he still, uh, in verse 19, talks about how the dispute is basically about their own religion um, and about Jesus. So there doesn't appear to be any, I mean, yeah, there's serious charges, but there's still charges that relate to Judaism. Um, and um, perhaps they added sedition to it or rebellion or something like that. But Festus seems to be able to look look behind that and see that it's really just an intramural struggle here within Judaism. I think one of the remarkable things in the scene um, with the trial, uh, Jeff, you alluded to this in talking about Paul as scapegoat and his refusal to be that pawn. We, we've talked about Paul's shrewdness uh, on several other occasions uh, in the last um, latter part of our series. Uh, but this is another example of that. Paul recognizes the dynamics of the relationship between Festus and the Jewish leaders. Uh, and he recognizes that he's being used as a political tool for Festus to gain favor with the Jews. I, I think, I think Alistair, I think you're right, Alistair, that this is some kind of compromise suggestion, but it still is a concession to the Jews in the sense that it's taking him back to Jerusalem and the Jews would have the opportunity to carry out the, the ambush that they wanted to carry out. Um, before. Um, but Paul, Paul sees through that and he recognizes w- what is being done with him. He recognizes that he's, that he's a plaything for these different powers. I thought of, uh, you know, in one sense, I think of him as being the poor man of the Psalms, you know, the, the one who's needy and poor, not in terms of financial stat, financial standing, but he's poor in power. He's poor in status and he's being manipulated and controlled by the powers that, the powerful people surrounding him. And Paul is in that kind of position, uh, but he knows it. And, he, and, and it's not just, it's not a matter of Paul just saying, well, you know, Jesus has my back. I'll just let myself be played or let myself be this pawn. Uh, he refuses to be the pawn. He sees, sees it, I think, as an opportunity, not just to, uh, the appeal to Caesar, not just gets him, uh, gets him some legal room to maneuver, uh, but also is an opportunity for the gospel. But uh, again, the, just the, the shrewdness of Paul seeing seeing what's going on around him uh, and being decisive in refusing to uh, refusing to let himself become that become that scapegoat or that pawn. That's uh, uh, takes remarkable um, remarkable insight into the into the uh, into the swirl of things that are happening around him. Yeah, I, I think that's a really great observation paul is kind of in earthly terms this plaything um he, uh with with the romans and, and the jewish governors and yet at the same time behind the scenes it is god's purposes which are being worked out here because um paul will give his uh you know road to damascus um he experienced a number of times in this in in this section of the book of acts which brings to mind that that promise you know i've chosen you to appear before kings and governors for my name's sake and when you first hear that you think of paul traipsing all over the mediterranean to sort of appear before these kings but i mean actually he's just going to stay in israel and they're all going to be brought to him and then he can sort of testify um, before these kings and then on, on the last occasion um, he will be escorted to rome so that he can appear before another king you know and and so um uh th- while I guess Paul is 
bound, um, the word of God is is not bound. Mm. Yeah, great point. It is noteworthy that the Jews aren't actually seeking um, to have an unjust ruling by which to dispose of Paul. They're actually intending to ambush them on the way. Um, this is uh, the approach of bandits. It's not actually the approach of people who are using procedure as a means of attacking their enemies. Um, these are the Jewish authorities, and yet they're stooping to such methods. And Paul seems to have some sense of this. He's been involved in the murderous plots before, um, prior to his conversion. And so he knows what the authorities are capable of. And one of the things that he's doing here in appealing to Caesar is giving Festus an out, a way of mm -hmm. escaping from the situation. And so he can go behind or beyond Festus. And he gives Festus a degree of latitude with that. It's not um, within the code of law, this appeal to Caesar. And so there can be some latitude in the way that the appeal is handled. But he knows that Festus is entangled in Jerusalem politics. It would make a righteous judgment very unlikely. The Jews have their own plans that he has some mm -hmm. sense of. They've already had one plot that's been revealed to him by his nephew. And so at this point, he has this other card that he can play that the Jews weren't anticipating and which gives Festus some way of saving face mm -hmm. and also enables him to fulfill what God had said to him um, in chapter 23, that he would testify concerning him in Rome also. Yeah, the the reference to bandits, I think, is is uh, noteworthy. This is these are Jewish leaders, after all, who chose Barabbas over Jesus. So we know where their preferences lie, uh, and Paul Paul is aware of that. That's a great point. I have this note in my my notes that, that Festus was assassinated by these Jewish sicarii, these dagger men, in Judea. I didn't get a chance to check that out this morning, but. Uh, that's that's ironic if that it's a, if that's the case. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> well, I guess I want to go back to James's point too about uh, God being in the background orchestrating things. Um, the uh, the it, there's a point beyond that 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 intrigues me, that challenges me, and that is Paul's uh, act active agency in in uh, in that uh, development. Uh, he doesn't wait for God to orchestrate things to get him to Rome. He appeals to Rome. So in a sense, he's I mean, he, he's uh, intending to go to Jerusalem and then beyond that, or he's told he's going to Jerusalem and then beyond that to Rome. He's That's been revealed to him. But instead of just passively waiting for that to happen, he seizes this opportunity. He's accomplishing a lot of things at once, but one of the things he's accomplishing is fulfilling that destiny. He must be in Jerusalem and he must testify in Rome. Part part of what intrigues me is that he's not just riding on the waves of providence. <laughs> uh, he's he's you know he's making his own providence, as it were. Yeah, that's right. He he knows when to um, sort of allow uh, God to lead and, and and when to push a point, doesn't he? We we um we were sort of commenting on it earlier. I think that when he's initially brought and accused falsely, he doesn't defend himself um, a, a great deal, you know. And when he's warned not to go to Jerusalem. He, he seems very happy to to accept. Yeah, he'll he'll be bound. Um, but but you're right. Now now he knows that 
he needs to um to start uh, exercising some agency himself and that's in stark contrast with Jesus at his mm-hmm. trial we've called right. attention to the similarities and differences uh the four trials uh, and yet Jesus is very passive uh, and doesn't say a whole lot um, and Paul is active in uh, really orchestrating some of this the way it's going to come down and also very loquacious mm-hmm. uh, in his defense. Surely there's there's a lesson there for uh, the Christian church. And, and what I think of, you know, practically when I think of this is um, oftentimes today you'll hear people quote the passage, do not trust in princes. Um, and there's this uh, polemic against putting any trust in any uh, human leaders, presidents, congressmen, kings, or, or whatever. And, it, and, and it's, all, it, it's almost always made out to be a zero-sum game. You either trust God or you trust these uh, human uh, authorities. And yet Paul here is able, to, um, <laughs> is able to put some trust in the legal system in order to get what he wants, which is basically an opportunity for the gospel. But it's not ultimate trust. It's not like he's putting his trust in Caesar ultimately for his for his life and future. But he is he is using the legal system that is there in place uh, and putting some uh, some a limited trust in these princes and rulers. And that requires a great deal of discernment and wisdom and experience on how to do it. And surely there's a lesson here for the church in watching how Paul navigates all of this. And part of this is also an indictment upon the um, authorities in Jerusalem that Paul would have more of a chance of a fair hearing and justice from a pagan empire um, than from them. And part of it is just the dynamics of an empire. Often a minority is more likely to receive justice in an empire than in a nation where the majority can really hold sway. But Mm. There is a sense also of a repositioning of the Christian movement more generally, that the Christian movement is now, its untethering from um, Judaism has been taking place throughout the course of the book so far. And this is, as it were, another incremental stage in that Mm. um, detachment, that it's becoming, it's a movement in its own right, it's seeking to um, go on its own within the realm of the wider empire. I don't know about you guys, but as I was reading through the chapter, I really liked verse 20, just the way it's um, worded. You know, so they realise the point of contention between Paul and the Jews, and, and they say, you know, um, uh, dispute about a certain Jesus who is dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And then um, Festus says, you know, being at a loss how to investigate these questions, um, I asked whether which, I don't know, it just read read quite nicely to me. I, I enjoyed it. Um, someone needed to get him a copy of Evidence That Demands a Verdict. <laughs> that, that's not a criticism of that book, by the way. <laughs> that's a blast from the past. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's a verse twenty is an example of uh, something I wanted a question I wanted to raise. We, so we we have the the hearing before Festus ends in verse twelve, and then several days later, Agrippa and Bernice come to Caesarea to visit Festus. Uh, again, Festus is a new official, and so the different leaders in the area are paying their respects to him. 
And Festus gives this fairly lengthy account of how he's tried to deal with Paul and and setting up to ask Agrippa to share in the hearing. But verse 20 is one of the places where the questions about how straightforward and honest Festus is being is about how he about his uh, motivations and and his conduct of this. He claims that it's because of his ignorance of these Jewish matters that that's why he wants to send Paul back to Jerusalem so that he can be tried by a jury of his peers, as it were, you know, experts in the law. Uh, we've been told earlier by the narrator, though, by Luke, that he wants to do the Jews a favor, and that's why he suggests sending Paul back to sending Paul back to Jerusalem. That's in verse nine. So it's not impossible that he's got a variety of different motives to want to send Paul back, but the ones that he the ones that he presents to Agrippa are uh, fairly high minded. He he doesn't uh, uh, he doesn't uh, uh, mention this politicking that he's that uh, Luke has told us is is in is in his mind, and that happens several times in his speech that he's kind of glossing over and shaping his story to Agrippa uh, in ways that conflict with the way it's been presented in Luke's account. Inviting Agrippa to be part of um, this investigation would also be a way of um, currying favor favor with him and tightening the connection between Agrippa and Rome. Um, In this situation, he's just a new governor. He's asking for a favor from Agrippa that he would give his eyes to this case. Um, By asking that favor, he's giving some degree of recognizing that he'll be in some degree of debt to Agrippa Agrippa has the opportunity to gain favor very early on. And so um, it's serving some of his political ends as well, no doubt. Agrippa is the only surviving son of Herod Agrippa I, who died back in um, Acts chapter 12. So he's Herod Agrippa II. He's ruling over the northeast of Herod the Great's old kingdom. And so it's important to establish some sort of positive relationship um, the relationship between the earlier Herod, in who was involved in the death of Christ, um, and Pilate, was played out in the context of the hearing concerning Christ. And so the relationship between Herod and Festus here is again in play. Um, mm-hmm. Agrippa II will prove to be a faithful vassal, um, he was allowed to appoint the high priest. He's an expert in Jewish matters. His sister was the wife of the previous governor. He'd later sided with the Romans in the war. So that particular relationship is one that Festus is eager to cultivate, and perhaps more so than the relationship between the um, with the Jewish authorities mm-hmm. in Jerusalem, who could not be trusted to quite the same degree. Whereas Agrippa gives him some degree of um, insight and relationship to those politics without having to throw himself into that whole maelstrom of um, polit- political machinations. We've, we've mentioned already how Paul's uh, trial is uh, following on, on Jesus. It's an, it's an echo of Jesus' trial or a replication of Jesus' trial. Uh, the relationship, as you said, Alistair, between Pilate and Herod is uh, similar to that between Festus and Agrippa. But uh, there's another layer to that. I'm, I'm working on this. I found an old article that was trying to. It, it was showing how Luke presents um, the Paul, Paul's uh, notion of. Uh, Paul says several times, "Imitate me as I as I am an imitator of Christ." 
And uh, this essay was arguing that Luke is presenting the same kind of paradigm where Paul is following Jesus into these trials and his life is being uh, con- conformed to the life of Jesus. His trials are being conformed to the trials of Jesus. But there's another step to that because uh, uh, believers are supposed to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. Uh, and the essay points out a number of, a number of uh, details where the account of Paul's trials match up with what Jesus predicts in Luke about what's coming for his disciples. We've, we've mentioned this in previous episodes uh, that uh, Jesus promises the Spirit to give them utterance when they're before governors and kings. Uh, the fact that they're going to stand before governors and kings, that's what's actually happening now here with a Roman governor and King Agrippa together are going to have a hearing for Paul. The fact that uh, this provides an opportunity for testimony, even though they're, they might be under arrest. Um, the fact that they testify before uh, before the world of Jesus means that Jesus will uh, testify of uh, testify of them and 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 uh, speak on their behalf. So you have all these parallels with uh, Luke twenty one, which a couple of things occur to me. One is you have the that point that the author was making that uh, what happened what's happening to Paul is not unique to Paul. It's going to happen to other believers, and they're supposed to imitate Paul's conduct in these trials as he's imitating Christ. The other thing that met, that uh, that occurs to me is that those instructions from Jesus come from Luke 21, which is Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse. And again, makes me wonder to what degree we're seeing uh, the intensification of the situation that that Jesus describes leading up to the to the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, in in Revelation, that intensification involves a growing alliance between Judaism and Rome between Jewish leaders and Roman leaders against the saints. And it does seem like you have some subtle hints that we're moving that direction. Uh, Whatever Festus is trying to do with splitting the difference between them, he's bowing to Jewish pressure and he's wanting to do do the Jews a favor. And you're seeing kind of some of the weaknesses of the Roman authorities and their inability to protect Christians. So uh, the fact that there's references, there seem to be references to Luke 21 here, seems to bring these trials under the heading of the Olivet Discourse and the growing crisis that leads to the end of the age. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.